This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back, everyone, to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am Stephen Hausman. I am an assistant professor of history at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota, and I'm your host for today's interview. I am speaking with Dr. Andrea McDowell, who is a professor of law at Seton Hall University and is the author of We the Miners, Self-Government in the California Gold Rush, which came out with in 2022 with Harvard University Press. Welcome to the New Books Network, Andrea. Good to have you here. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Why don't we just start, as we always do here on the New Books Network, by just hearing a little bit about who you are. What is your background, and how did you become interested in law and in history generally? Oh, I was always interested in history from childhood, and the more ancient, the better. So I started off as an Egyptologist, and I worked on the community of workmen who built the tombs in the Valley of the Kings in ancient Egypt. And I loved that area because of the sources. Um, I was, the the Valley of the Kings um, community was literate and they left something like 20,000 texts and so we had this amazing glimpse into life 3,000 years ago and I was particularly interested in the law there, how they ran their legal system within the community. Well, I mean, I, I think at this point I have to ask, how do you go from Egyptology and Egyptian history and, <laughs> and very ancient history um, to the sort of legal and governmental history of the 19th century American West? What's the road that took you that path? Yes, it was, an, it was a sort of end of the road problem. The number of tenure track jobs in Egyptian history are, is tiny. There are only about nine or ten in the country and maybe one opens every three years and the ones that opened during my period in Egyptology, I didn't get. So um, I really was interested in law and legal history. It didn't have to be ancient Egypt. So I switched to law. And, um, and within the law, I was, I was interested in finding an area with great original sources and where I could reconstruct a lost world, which is what I'd done in Egyptology. So what brought you to this topic in particular? Why questions about government and about the law during this particularly fascinating period in California history, during the gold rush? Oh, it's the sources. It's always about the sources. Every time you talk to a uh, historian, it's about because they've discovered great sources. And in this case, it was the letters and diaries of thousands of young men who were off on this great adventure, writing home to their parents and to their wives, whom they promised they would tell about every single detail of the trip. And um, they did. Some of them were there for the adventure. 
Some of them were there for the hope of a fortune. A lot of them were there to free themselves from dependence on employers and landlords. So it's all about independence. And they are people from the East Coast, people like us who are describing it freshly in the moment to their families. So that's an amazing, amazing lens into life in the 19th century and life in the gold rush, more specifically. It's as though they're talking to us. <laughs> yeah, I, I've seen some of some of these sources. I've, I've looked through sort of gold, gold rush era sources, and uh, they really can be really fascinating, pers- fascinatingly, excuse me, personal sometimes, the thing yes. that people are talking about. I totally understand what you're saying, yeah. Very emotional, very... Yeah. They're amazed by what they're seeing. They're describing it full of sort of wonder, hiding sometimes the more um, embarrassing bits. <laughs> One of my favorite <laughs> letters says, is a, a, a young man writing home to his brother, and he says he's thinking of setting up a saloon, and he asks his brother to find half a dozen tasteful, large paintings of naked women in gold frames. But don't tell mom and dad. <laughs> <laughs> Like you said, personal and sometimes a little bit embarrassing, right? (laughs) Very embarrassing and also hilarious because I imagine Mm -hmm. his brother in wherever, Lowell, Massachusetts or wherever, trying to find large, tasteful paintings of of naked women in gold frames. Where where do you go for that and not let mom and dad know? (laughs) Right, right, right. So for, for some of our listeners that might only have the, the, the kind of briefest idea of this time period, can you explain just a bit of the, the, the basics of the California gold rush? What sparks this event? Who is traveling to California to find their, their fortune? And more to kind of the, the center of the book, what kind of conditions, legal and otherwise, are they finding when they arrive in California? Ah, right. So gold was discovered in the spring of '48. And at that time, America had just, I'm I'm using air quotes here, won California after the war from Mexico, or we could, more honestly, we could say they just took the the whole area after the war with Mexico. And that extended America suddenly in one leap a thousand miles from the nearest state. So we're a little closer to the frontier, but we're still hundreds, many hundreds of miles from the nearest American settlement. And put the frontier out on the Pacific coast. And there were some Americans in California at the time, um, a small settlement near what would become San Francisco, and in particular one settler, John Sutter, um, had a fort a little bit inland, and he had the idea of building a sawmill near a stream in the foothills of the mountains, the Sierra Nevada mountains, and in the race, the, the discharge portion of that, um, that mill, his workers discovered gold. And that started an internal gold rush, even before America had acquired California. Um, and the whole California population deserted their jobs and their farms and rushed to the mining region. And that eventually triggered the national gold rush. But there was no infrastructure or market or even population in California. So that first generation, they were also very fascinating because they really suffered the Midas touch. That is, everything they touched turned to gold. But there was no market. They couldn't buy food. They couldn't buy blankets or clothes. 
So if they contracted scurvy, they had no way of getting vegetables that would cure the scurvy. So they had all the gold in the world, as Midas did, but not, not the necessities of life. So that was an amazing sort of freakish inverse of the economic world we're used to. All the gold you want, but you can't buy vegetables. <laughs> and of course, that news spread to the uh, East Coast. And in the spring of 49, the 49ers took off from the East Coast cities and from the, the um, towns and villages on the frontier. And um, many took out huge debts in order to fund the trip. They had to go by boat all the way all the way around South America in some cases, or over the uh, isthmus through Mexico. And when they arrived in California, they found a country without a government, still, because it took years for America, for California to gain statehood. So there were no laws, there were no officers of the law, no sheriffs, there were no courts. <laughs> um, and furthermore, in the mining camps, at any rate, everyone was a stranger. There was no community. People hadn't met each other before. They knew the people they'd come with, but they didn't discover any society, let alone a society with, you know, with some sort of um, stability or sheriff or anyone that could maintain order. They were completely on their own. So after they arrive, and as you say, they find themselves completely on their own, kind of legally and governmentally speaking, what do they do? What, what are some of the earliest forms of self-government and of legal systems that people begin to set up in California at the gold fields? I guess what I'm asking is how, how was early gold rush legal culture formed and enacted at this time period? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question. <laughs> <laughs> that is what my book is about. So... What I what the book the book's thesis is that everything self government and also running the uh, the the mining projects and setting up companies and social events was done by by meetings by meetings running very formal parliamentary procedure, which means you have a chairman and the chairman asks for motions and motions come from the body and there are votes and the body abides by the vote of the majority. I mean, really very formal. In fact, I missed this at first when I was reading all of their documents because I thought, yeah, 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 they elect a chairman, blah, 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 they take a vote. And then I went, tried to find what they decided, but actually it was that process that's so amazing about what was going on in the in the mines. They could the miners could within fifteen minutes organize a meeting, um, make motions, debate those motions, have counter motions, reach a vote, and move forward. So that took the place of the institutions. They didn't have a sheriff. They didn't have a mayor's office. They didn't have whatever local officials you might have. Uh, you know, Rotary Club or whatever they had. They didn't even have community, but they could use those meetings to make decisions, set up institutions if necessary, short term, um, and um, and and go on from there. So that did the work of law and it did the work of community. Um, and where I'm most interested uh, is in the area of criminal law, because of course these meetings were the only way to try and punish uh, criminals. So 
if you'd like to hear more about that, I'd be eager to explain it. <laughs> well, I, I do want to ask a little bit later about mm-hmm. um, about law and particularly kind of punitive law and violence. Right, but okay. I'm wondering, still, still just in kind of a general sense, I, I, I wonder if there's a couple examples, maybe, of how this might play out on the ground, what these meetings, how they were conducted, what they kind of look like in the moment. Yes, so um, mining companies also use these meetings so that the miners sometimes gathered a group of five or maybe 10 or maybe 50 people to run a mining operation. They also use these meetings and um, I don't, if, if you're a faculty member, which I don't suppose most of your listeners are, you know this from faculty meetings, but they have to start completely <laughs> from scratch. So they would have to, um, as I said, have a, have a ch- elected chairman. So generally the impetus for the meeting actually came from the chairman. <laughs> so it was often a storekeeper, for instance, a storekeeper who was trying to create a welcoming mining camp. A store, the storekeepers were the ones who made all of the money. Right, so the miners spent the money they earned pretty much on provisions and sometimes on alcohol, but the storekeeper who was setting, selling the provisions, he was the one who was in a position to actually profit from all of this. So he had an interest in um, a stable community that would welcome, that other miners would be attracted to. So someone would nominate his name to be chairman, and he would be the chairman, and. Uh, if you, were, if you were setting up uh, a legal code, for instance, um, that chairman would then ask for um, proposals for making rules. And someone would make proposals. The, the rule for mining would, was generally about the size of the claim and how long you had to stay on your claim in order to keep it because there was very high turnover and the main concern of the miners was protecting their interest in their claim so that nobody would encroach on it. So saying that they were guaranteed a 10 foot by 10 foot claim at the beginning, which is tiny, but also encouraging turnover. So if someone left to go prospecting and never came back, that claim would be open for others to settle. So the the first issue was what's the size of a claim and how long do you have to work it? Um, How long can you be away from working it before it becomes free to others? So there would be a proposal from the floor that they'd start with 10 by 10 claims or generally local miners liked even larger ones if they could hold on to them, 20 by 20. And then uh, and then a proposal and then there would be a vote and then there would be a proposal from the floor about um, how long you could be away and uh, proposals about how you had to mark your claim, so to indicate to others that it was taken by notices at each of the four corners or something like that. And when all of that was done, it would be written up in a very formal way and kept by the storekeeper or posted on a tree and the meeting would dissolve. And they could do that in 10 minutes. (laughs) They were very fast. It's pretty fascinating to me um, how, uh, how do I want to phrase this, how they, they came up with these ideas. I'm wondering what sort of precedents they're drawing from in, in creating these miners' meetings and, and how they're coming up with these ideas of how to conduct their, their, their legal systems and, and their governance in these early years. 
Well, if you trace it back to the East Coast, um, Americans used meetings instead of government for a lot of, you know, in a most of America. So for a lot of areas of what we would consider governance, um, and the the idea of the uh, the parliamentary procedure was codified in America first by Thomas Jefferson. Turns out that when the first Congresses met in America, they didn't have a clear parliamentary procedure and everything was rather um, informal and it wasn't even clear. I mean, the, the secretary wrote down the decisions, but they hadn't been voted on in those terms. So the secretary had to sort of formulate the sense of the body. And uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson set up uh, rules of parliamentary procedure that are still basically the ones used in Congress. Um, similar to the ones used in England, by the way, they aren't in themselves very innovative, but the whole, um, but having some written rules was a newish thing in America. And um, elsewhere, well, outside of, outside of Congress in America, we didn't have much local government, uh, not to the extent that they had in England and France, for instance so that local decisions about building a road or clearing obstructions from a road or carrying out charitable works, uh, if there was some kind of famine or something and people had to be fed, all of that was decided in America by local people making decisions using parliamentary procedure. And Alexis de Tocqueville writes about that in America. He says that what was done in Europe, what was done in England by um, members of the arist aristocracy or by, in uh, France by the government was done in America by the people on the ground, passing motions and organizing themselves. So when the miners came to America, they were used to that, also from their clubs back east, lyceums, they were clubs for um, discussing uh, uh, matters, topic, sort of debating clubs or de or book reading clubs, uh, and then the pioneers when they moved to the West, they had meetings to organize their uh, pioneer groups um, and divide up the responsibilities. The cost was divided among and the, and the duties of the various pioneers towards other members of the group and. Um, who was going to be, how many time, hours you had to be on watch and how people would be punished if they fell asleep on watch. All of that was decided by parliamentary procedure as well. So by the time they reached California, Americans were all experts in this and could organize instantly for any purpose. It just happened that the need they had in California was government and mining companies and criminal law. <laughs> You, you mentioned faculty meetings, and now imagining a, 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 an American history told through meetings. I, I kind of didn't realize that Americans have such a long uh, and storied history of, 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 of meetings. <laughs> yes, and that it was so fundamental to actually right, right, right. governing even East Coast communities, let yeah. alone on the frontier, of course, where there was nothing but meetings. So, of course, when these, these gold rushers arrive in California, as, as you already said, this is not an empty place in a few different levels. And, you know, as, as historians like Benjamin Madley and Willie Bauer have, have written, mm -hmm. California is one of the most densely populated indigenous parts of North America when Indeed. the gold rush happens. So I'm wondering, what kind of relationship did Native people have with the early miners and these early mining communities? And how do these relationships, or what do these relationships 
tell us about the, the development of government and law in California in the late 1840s and early 1850s? That is a sad history. You mentioned Benjamin Madley, so I, I guess you're aware of the campaign to exterminate, and they used exactly that word, the native population. They exploited them first before they exterminated them. So Indians were, Native Americans were very good at finding gold because of course they lived there and they understood the topography. So the the best gold miners at the very beginning were the Indians. And um, this is where the traders got so rich. They traded with the Indians and extracted this gold. It's very interesting, I think, at the beginning that the Indians had a better sense of the local, I don't want to call it economy, but the resources available to them. So they had a more realistic um, idea of what gold could buy in a world where there was where there were no shops. (laughs) Um, The Indians would um, would buy blankets, for instance, from the Americans there. And the Americans thought, wow, you know, a hundred dollars at that time for a blanket that was worth, you know, a dollar back home. So they sold all their blankets and ended up freezing, being near freezing to death. <laughs> so in, in this new world, gold wasn't worth what it was worth on the East Coast. It was worth what you could buy in the Sierra Nevada, and that was very little. So that's kind of interesting to see the the Indians, you know, being able to fish, for instance, and having enough food and the Americans starving. <laughs> because they didn't really get that that, that gold wasn't <laughs> worth anything if there was nothing to buy. They, of course, tried to buy the Indians fish, but the Indians may or may not, not have sold it to them. So that was in the beginning. You could say, in a sense, the Indians had the upper hand, but they lost that very quickly. Um, they were exploited by the merchants. And eventually, of course, the Americans drove them from there. Um, place of habitation. Um, A few early Americans formed friendships with Native Americans, and the ones who did the very best in the gold rush, I think, were were again traders, traders who had a trusting, a relationship of trust with the Native Americans. And there are some very poignant accounts of well, particular, one particular miner, uh, Alonso Delano, who had a trading post and who became close to the community where he was living and learned some Native American words. And um, But eventually he left and the Americans eventually had very little use left for the Native population. And then there was a subsect of Americans who actually enjoyed killing people and they would organize parties and to just um, slaughter entire villages. And those accounts are are so horrific, they're very hard to read. That's what Benjamin Madley writes about. And uh, eventually they were reduced to a kind of slavery through the codes that govern Native um, and American relations. I'm getting all sad. This is really just the most horrific and shameful part of the gold rush. Well, and, and it sounds like the, this goes very much hand in hand. The development of, of law and government in California go hand in hand with the dispossession and removal and, and murder of so many Native people, too, that you can't separate these two histories. 
Yes, partly. I mean, the it's true that the people who organized the slaughter of the population did that with meetings. And there was, of course, another portion of the population writing in their diaries and writing to their family at home about how sickening this was. But sort of what follows from their ability to organize is that they could have organized to stop it. <laughs> and they right, didn't. Right, right, right. So yeah. they, this is where not holding meetings was a sort of statement in itself. They, they had the power and they didn't do it. And partly they were afraid of the people who were killing the Indians. That is, those were the rowdiest, the sort of, they were often frontiersmen. And, you know, standing up to them meant at least that they would be angry at you. I don't know what they could have done to you, not much, but people were afraid to, they, they talked among themselves, they talked in their letters, but the good guys, as I think of them, didn't actually take the steps that they could have taken to prevent the slaughter. I want to ask also about the miners' codes, which mm-hmm. I, I feel like if, if anyone has heard anything about law during gold rush areas, maybe they've heard of the miners' codes yes. before. Can you, can, you, can you explain what these were and how they were uh, a very powerful legal tool for early California miners in the 1840s? Yes. Well, this is where um, parliamentary procedure and meetings are most obvious, because the miners, when they when they drafted these codes, which, as I said, started very small with the size of a claim and how often you had to work it and so on, they were very conscious of themselves as lawmakers. So you get this wonderful awareness of creating a government in the wilderness, particularly in the preambles to the codes, and at least three of them start with words like, we the miners of such and such district, in order to establish Uh, a a more perfect union amongst ourselves and um, secure harmony and justice, enact the following laws. So they're consciously echoing the words of the Constitution of the United States. They see themselves as lawmakers. And then the laws they enacted were, of course, arrived at through parliamentary procedure, the motions from the floor and so on. And the code, and basically... (laughs) At the beginning, the first codes were so short that you get this very grand preamble and then absolutely minimal rules about size of claims. So it wasn't all that much. Um, Over time, the the codes had to get much more elaborate and um, deal with different kinds of mining and conflicts between miners who were engaged in huge projects like moving the rivers out of the riverbed, channeling them into either flumes running alongside the riverbed or into canals that they had dug and then dumping them back in the river. And then there was more, there were longer term projects. There was more scope for um, conflicts between different groups of miners and the, the codes, the rules got more and more elaborate and had more provisions for dispute resolutions. And This then carries over, incidentally, beyond California, so that's kind of my next project, is um, miners' codes in elsewhere on the frontier, where they have even more elaborate sets of rules that they enacted. And then, as I said, the codes had provisions for dispute resolutions, um, electing groups of five to decide uh, disputes between um, mining groups, and 
it, it was effectively, in their mind, it was a law code. They were passing laws that would govern them and any newcomers who came among them. And the difference between an agreement and laws is that an agreement binds the parties who have signed on to it, and laws govern any newcomers that would come to the community. So new people who came to the diggings would take a look at the mining code to see what the size of claims was and, and what they would have to do in order to secure their claims and when they would be able to jump someone else's claim. Because jumping was not something illegal, it was the way that claims changed hands if they had been abandoned. So if someone was gone for more than five days, his claim was open for jumping and newcomers could simply move in and put their own names on the, the boundary notices. You know, hearing you talk about these codes, um, I'm, I'm, I, I can't help but wonder, did they work? Like, was, was this a successful <laughs> form of, of law and government? Or was it just sort of, I mean, you're talking about claim jumping and things and yeah. rules around when you can or cannot jump a claim. Uh -huh. Was this effective or was it just sort of organized chaos to an extent? No, it was effective. We do know that people looked at the codes and, and that they noticed when someone had stopped mining and they... Um, they felt free to move in. So to a certain extent, it facilitated, or to a great degree, it, it facilitated turnover of mining claims. Um, the problem is, this was a direct democracy. I, I know that from my studies of Greece, ancient Greece. So if you have the whole community making the laws, you've got no parliament, no lawmaking body to whom they delegate their rulemaking decisions, and no courts, because the whole community was the court when there was a dispute um, the disputants could come before the, the body. Um, nothing is fixed. They say they're fixed. They've written them down. They've made these rules. But the community can change the rules at any point. They are the government, so they can instantly change the rules. So they have rules for dispute resolution, for instance, and rules for claim making and claim abandonment. Dispute resolution was ordinarily supposed to be done by um, a group of five. The disputants each chose two. Each of those four who were chosen chose a fifth, and they would decide the dispute. But it happened quite often that the loser in that dispute would appeal to the miners' meeting. And why not? I mean, the miners' meeting made the laws, and they can change the laws, with the result that there were disputes being appealed to the miners' meeting, the whole community, often, and in some communities, almost every Sunday had a miners' meeting in order to decide, to decide disputes. So it was terribly inefficient in that sense. <laughs> because the whole group held the power, they could always take over from the, um, the group of five, and you ended up having, in, in that's getting back to your question, you ended up having very little deference to the rules that were enacted by the miners' meeting because any rule could be appealed to the miners' meeting and, any, and a miners' meeting could be called at any moment. So it ended up being more chaotic than it, or chaotic, I don't know if it's chaotic. They did have these rules, uh, parliament, rules of parliamentary procedure and their decision was final, but it ended up being less efficient than it looks uh, uh, in the codes. 
And of course, historians, you know, we fundamentally, we study change, right? Mm -hmm. Or what changes and what stays the same. And mm -hmm. the gold rush is not going to maintain this kind of status quo for uh, for very long. And I'm wondering how the uh, the development and the arrival of large-scale uh, corporate mining entities, mm -hmm. how that begins to change the balance of power in gold mm -hmm. rush era government and, and legal systems. Yeah, that's a good question. I thought you were going to ask about the appearance of government in California, because it, by 1850, it had a government. Oh, I should ask about that. I will ask about that. Why don't we talk about that first, and then we can talk about, about corporate uh, uh, impositions yes. as well. So it took, a, it took a, a long time for California to get a government, because California would be the state that shifted the balance between North and South. So Congress in Washington didn't want to give California statehood. Or at least they wanted to, but they couldn't decide on the terms for a very long time. And so California went ahead and passed the Constitution uh, without authority from uh, Congress. It should have gone through the territory phase and then the statehood phase, but it went ahead on its own. So it did get a Constitution and it did get courts. And so um, at some point you've got state law that should be superior to the law of the camps. Now, of course, California was extraordinarily mining focused, very sympathetic to the miners. They knew that the gold rush was there, initially was their source of fame and wealth. And uh, it took a while for agriculture to take over from mining. So the, the government, central government was fine letting the miners pass their own mining codes. They didn't want to get, they didn't want to shape the rules of mining. And in fact, they applied the rules of mining in their own court cases. But the government did want to take over uh, the criminal law from the mining camps. So that's something I haven't talked about yet. But um, before there was a government, there was, of course, no criminal law system. And criminal trials were also run by these miners' meetings. So, you know, the whole shebang, a criminal would be an alleged criminal, accused criminal, would be captured, for instance, in a murder case, sometimes caught in the act, of course, because a murder done in the, in the mining camp would be witnessed by others, and he would, that individual would be um, seized. And then there were no criminal laws in the mining codes, interestingly. So there was no procedure, and they would simply hold a miners' meeting, <laughs> elect a chairman, and decide on whether it, there would be a jury trial, how the jury would be selected, and then the trial would be held before the whole community. Jury would retire, jury would come back with a verdict, everything looks exactly like it does in an American criminal court. The judge in these proceedings wasn't the chairman, it was the meeting as a whole. The meeting delegated the procedure to the chairman, but at the when the verdict came back, if the verdict was guilty, the judge, you know, in an American court decides the sentence. So the sentence would be posed to the minors. <laughs> could be 20, could be 100. In very large meetings, it could be 1,000. And they decided whether the individual was to, the choices were, be hanged or be whipped. <laughs> and um, then you get this interesting dynamic because the first person to shout out a proposal would almost always be hang him. 
and you realize that a crowd consists of miners and also of the gamblers who are hanging around, it seems that it's most often the gamblers who are pushing for the the harshest penalty, not because they cared about law and order, but because they were rather violent types. And so the first proposal is hang him. And someone would often make a counter proposal. And there's a bit of gamesmanship here, because if your counter proposal was fine him, <laughs> depending on, you know, if, if we're talking about theft. So if, if someone committed murder, the, the, hang, the penalty would always be execution. If someone committed theft, there was a range of possible penalties. And hang him was one. The counter offer had to be something harsh enough that it could get a majority of votes. So it was generally whipping, whipping 30 lashes, 39 lashes or 50 lashes or more. And then there would be a vote. And the vote could be, could be pretty raucous, but eventually they would decide on what the outcome would be. And that would be carried out. Now carried out, of course, there's no, there's no body to carry it out. There's no sheriff. So the parties who were interested in, in doing the hanging or doing the whipping would volunteer. And uh, that was not an efficient way to do things. That is, the hangings were not clean. They were often very messy. Uh, can't remember how I got down this road, but I find it so interesting. Uh, oh yeah, it was about the, the government taking over um, law from the miners. So that when there was a sheriff, the sheriff would sometimes fight the miners for the body of the accused. And then you would get the miners splitting. There were those who supported the sheriff and those who supported the um, the decision of the miners to hang him. And um, that could result in actual battles between the sheriff and his men and the miners and their men. So that that's one area where you get the battle between um, the miners and the federal and the, the state government. Um, the other area where you get tension is eventually miners appealing decisions of the local meeting to the government. So you get a shift, shift, gradual shift of the law of mining uh, being controlled by the miners to being controlled by the, by the state government. Never so much about the mining codes, but eventually between the different interest groups at work in the mines. So you mentioned the shift to corporations. The first conflict was between the miners with individual mining claims and the miners who wanted to set up companies to divert water to more remote areas. Diverting water means, obviously, you're taking the water from the streams and building uh, either canals or eventually flumes to move it to more remote regions where there was gold but no water, that would leave the miners along the streams without n enough water. So then you had two groups conflicting. You could no longer decide this by a miners meeting, uh, a, a miners meeting that had was composed of individuals who had similar interests. Here you had conflicting interests, and those disputes ended up in the state law code uh, law courts. So now you see a shift of decision making to the state apparatus. 
I'm wondering if if this is a fair sort of categorization of the change that you are describing. I'm curious generally about what kind of finally shifts the balance of power away mm-hmm. from the miners in terms of government. It sounds like it's a combination of both corporations and state government. Mm-hmm. And I'm, is, is, is it fair to say that this is a change from more direct democracy to less direct du- democracy? Is this is this is California after, say, the early 1850s, after the sort of like the, the heady heyday of of the gold rush ends mm-hmm. after the state government comes into being. Is this a story of less democracy in California, or is that not a fair way of categorizing it? Yes, it's a shift from direct democracy to representative democracy, which is what we have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, eventually you, uh, you've you got elected representatives who make laws, and you've got proper courts, and the courts decide in according to the laws, which means you know the laws aren't being remade every time a case is disputed. It's being there are existing laws on the books and they're being applied by the states and they're consistent across various state decisions. Supreme Court decisions are on the record. And so we're arriving at the kind of legal system that we know, which, of course, has to decide between conflicting interest groups. And um, it's not the law of the sort of majority interest group anymore, which is. On the one hand, of course, that's an advance. To the miners who had individual claims, it was a shift of authority from the people on the ground who had a direct involvement in uh, in the legal system on the ground. And, and they saw it as a shift to perhaps a body that favored the interests of, um, of the corporations. I don't know if that's always true, but they certainly... As they lost control, the miners felt this loss of control. They also felt that the loss was from them to corporations. I'm curious also, as, as we begin to, to draw to a close here, what you see as, as the legacies of these early legal systems. Do they just get simply entirely supplanted uh, by this, this less direct form of democracy, by kind of more corporate power? Or are there legacies that, uh, that remain in California, in California's legal system or its, its mm. governance today at all? Well, on the one hand, it, it did spread to the rest of the West. So you have gold rushes across the West in the frontier states, Colorado, for instance, that sort of follow the California model because by then they had a model. And on the frontier generally, this was the form of government until there was a settled government. So the claims clubs that, you know, uh, uh, sort of divided up the farming territory of the West before the government land offices came in were also run by uh, by meetings and my next project then is to do to work on that not on the claims clubs but on the criminal law and um, it's a, it didn't dis- the, the parliamentary procedure in self-government didn't disappear and it also was very prominent in um, all kinds of organizations into the 19th century. So, you know, Robert Putnam's book on organizations and their importance in America uh, as a form of community building. And uh, he wrote a book called Bowling Bowling Alone. I don't know if you've seen that. But he, he talks about the importance of clubs and the way individuals in America made contacts and business contacts and uh, adjusted to 
arriving in a new community by joining the clubs that were organized there and how important that was up till up through the 1950s and has almost disappeared. So the the self-organization, the uh, ability to run a meeting, the sort of contacts and community that were built through those meetings existed way beyond the frontier uh, up until just before I was born, I guess, and, and has largely disappeared according to Putnam. And indeed, you don't see it that much. We see it in faculty meetings and, of course, you know, uh, corporate meetings and all kinds of meetings still use parliamentary procedure. But as a, a element, an element of daily life for most Americans, it lasted a long time and now it's largely disappeared. And as we begin to wrap up, I always like to ask my guests to put themselves in the shoes of uh, someone that has read their book and is thinking back on this book, remembering this book a couple years down the line, maybe a year or two after reading it. And I'm wondering what you would hope that reader would remember or would understand or would take away from this book, remembering it back further on uh, uh, down the line a little bit. Uh, well, it is it is about the importance of parliamentary procedure in the 19th century and especially in the West and what it meant for what government by the people meant to Americans in uh, in the 19th century and, and sort of the lack of central government leading up to, well, um, the Civil War and beyond and the, the, the degree of participation that Americans, average Americans had in running their communities as well as voluntary organizations and educational organizations and effectively, you know, life together in the United States. And then finally, I'm curious what you've been working on since this book came out. You've alluded to to a next project a couple times during our conversation. Yes. Um, and I'm always, I'm always interested in getting a preview from my guests about what they've been working on in the interim. So what are you working on now? Well, now that I know so much about um, meetings in California that I can recognize them, I'm moving out towards out towards the rest of the West, the frontier, and asking whether meetings played that role in the rest of the frontier. So it was, at a certain point, were, were, was parliamentary procedure the government of over half of the landmass of the United States? And I'm starting with the criminal procedure because that's the sort of thing that's most often recorded. And uh, I am finding quite a bit, especially in mining areas, which were likely to enact codes. It's a little harder to find it in other communities, but I'm, and especially in, um, uh, pioneer settlements because they didn't have the same sort of records. But I think I can go a long way to at least reconstructing uh, parliamentary procedure as the criminal law of the frontier. Um, I haven't moved beyond that to the civil law, but I would like to do that as well. Well, when you are finished with that project, we'll have to have you back on the show if you okay. want to come back. Sure, I'd love to. Thank you. Dr. Andrea McDowell is a professor of law at Seton Hall University and is the author of We the Miners, Self-Government in the California Gold Rush, which came out just last year in 2022 with Harvard University Press. Thank you so much for joining me today, Andrea. Thank you so much. I enjoyed this.